Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and the shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting fields of endeavor. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, Maria Cabre. What's going on, Maria? Hi, John. I was going to say, how about them heat, but I'm a Celtics fan. So. Oh, how yeah. about them t- heat? We're up 2-0, yeah. right. unlike your Boston yeah. Celtics. Or uh, like 1-1. Or off. like, or no, like no, no. Rocco's 76ers. No, no, no. We're 1-1, and we're going to go up 2-1, so that's fine. Who's our first guest? Our first guest is the vice president of brand strategy and co-owner of Mass Landing Brewing Company in Westbrook, Maine, near Portland. Since opening their doors in 2016, they have earned numerous accolades, including 50 fastest growing U.S. craft breweries by the Brewers Association. They quickly established themselves as a major player in Maine's booming craft beer scene. They have since opened a second location in Freeport, much to the delight of their diehard fans. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Parker Olin. Uh, Parker is also joined this morning by Wesson Shepard, Mass Landing's production manager. Thank you for joining us this morning, both of you guys, actually. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Oh, before we continue, um, you guys won something yesterday on the World Beer Cup, huh? <laughs> we oh. did. Yes, we are. Yeah, we've been out all night partying. Um, no. um, <laughs> I mean, amazing. Yeah. yeah. We yeah we yeah very excited that was a, it was a very exciting text chain last night when we found out yeah we won um gold a gold medal for hazy double IPA oh um, nice yeah it was world congrats Cup. guys uh, we was, <laughs> thank you for uh, our pantless thunder goose uh, double IPA so it was pretty unexpected but um, you know I, I always knew that we we brew really good double IPAs and it feels very validating and um, you know it, it's really fulfilling and that. that and that is a loaded category with a lot of, a lot <laughs> yeah. of great talent yeah. so for you guys actually to win a gold medal I mean that is saying something to say the least to be honest yeah I was uh, yeah I was putting my uh, girls to bed and I literally like, dropped everything I was just yelling I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was swearing at the top of my lungs and my wife thought you know something, something happened some, something went very wrong and she comes <laughs> running in i was just like holy shit that's awesome man. that is awesome so you actually started your career in beer as a graphic designer for some macro beer brands i mean correct sounds like a great job what were your you know what were your day-to-day responsibilities back then so um yeah i mean they were kind of similar to uh what I do now, like probably 10% of what I do now, I, I still design all, you know, our labels, um, and do all the, uh, you know, head up the creative aspects of mass landing. But back then I was, yeah, we were working, I was working with you know, like Miller Coors, um, Diageo brands like Guinness and as well as, um, you know, liquor. And I was actually the person that, you know, when you go into a liquor store, um, or a package store and you see one of those like big displays that's you um you know that it's yeah so it's like the super bowl is coming uh you know or whatever (laughs) and you see like a goal post so i was actually using um you know 3d uh like cad software to design these displays um and you know racks and everything like that to as well as the you know the graphics and the design that goes into them but the full you know the full spectrum of those so that was my you know and then we would go out you know and and 
have them built. And it was, it was really cool. I, um, it was a very cool stepping stone to where I am today. And I, I, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I was able to do, you know, something like that, you know, very different, but still being creative. So where along the lines did you actually meet Ian, Neil and Mike, the co-founders of Mass Landing? Uh, yeah. So, um, actually it, it's kind of like, it goes back to that, you know, the, the stereotypical, uh, you know, craft brewery, um, <laughs> you know, story where Ian was, you know, working in finance and he was just not loving his job. Um, and, and really was looking for something more, you know, he just had a, a baby. Neil was uh, getting his actually his doctorate, uh, or working on his doctorate at North Northeastern. Wow. Um, and they, they, they had met in college. And, you know, they were doing the homebrew system and, you know, they'd been brewing for a couple of years in the garage. And um, I had been working at the agency uh, in in Massachusetts and then had just moved back up to Maine and was working at a different agency and was getting burnt out as well, Um, like kind of parallel to to Ian and Neil. Um, And when we we met at a barbecue of a friend of a friend and, he you know, they had brought their homebrew. And you know, we're thinking they're ta- talking about like, you know, we're thinking about, you know, actually making this real and starting a brewery. Um, and I was just, like I said, I was burnt out and I, I was like, Hey, I'm, you know, going to leave the agency and, you know, start my own marketing and design company. And they're like, well, you know, isn't that a really, you know, fortunate thing for us? If, you know, are you looking to, uh, you know, looking to take on clients and obviously that, um, yeah. So we, we, first met as friends and for a little, a couple months, you know, we're just hanging out, drinking beer, talking about, you know, the idea of it. And then, you know, they pulled the trigger. I was going to say, whose idea was it to open the brewery out of all you guys? (laughs) Oh, uh, Ian. Yeah, it was. So Ian, Ian had, and Neil, they'd always wanted, they were thinking about maybe doing it on the side, but he knew that, you know, you can't, some people try to do the side thing and he had to go, you got to go full send. And, um, and so they, yeah, they, they, they pulled the trigger. Um, Ian convinced his wife that, you know, she, she works in finance as well and that they could live off of, uh, her salary alone for, you know, say a year. And then Neil moved in with Ian, um, to cut costs. Um, and so they, and then they went for it and then, you know, brought me on uh, as the, you know, the creative aspect for a little while. And then I came on as an owner a couple months down the road where I had started my own gig and it, it came to the point where mass landing was, you know, 95% of the stuff that I was doing. And they were like, well, it just makes sense. So it was, it was a, you know, a a longer process to, for me to come on. But in the end it was, you know, I think it was a perfect, uh, a perfect transition. Perfect marriage. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) but who did anybody out of the group have any brewing experience? I mean, I know you worked in the in the brewing industry, obviously, with graphic design. But did any of you guys have any background in brewing, home brewing, um, anything? Just home brewing was. Yeah. They, they, you know, they did. I think it was two or three years they had been. But it's amazing, Neil. He's you know a mad scientist in, on that aspect. Like when the first time I walked into Ian's garage where they had the homebrew setup, it was like a mini professional brewery. Like that's awesome. It was they and they had like handmade everything too, and it was I was just blown away. Like you know glycol systems, you know made out that's of crazy. You know, okay. coolers. Okay. And so when I 
you know, everyone, you, you go to a, a, you know, a barbecue and it's like, someone's like, try my homebrew. And you're like, Oh, great. Thanks. You're like, it tasted like, you you know, I would have had no idea that this came out of, you know, some, uh, a kettle <laughs> some, in right, someone's yeah. garage. So yeah. I, when I met them, I knew there was something special there. And that's when, you know, teaming up with them was like one of the easiest decisions that I ever, you know, had, had, um, made. Oh, yeah. I mean, no knock at all. I mean, listen, I, it was a hobby for me. I was a, a, a C, you know, master's in accounting CPA for 15 years. And this was something I did on the side and then decided I wanted to get into brewing. So it's like, I, I didn't have any commercial experience either. You know what I mean? So it really all starts yeah. around homebrew for a lot of the guys that are massively successful. You know what I mean? It, it just seems to be kind of that transition, but you guys, sure. you guys are in Maine and you guys are in Westbrook, Maine where you decided to open the brewery. Why open the brewery in a town of 20,000 people? <laughs> so really, I mean, so Mass Landing, the name actually is um, where I'm sitting right now is in Freeport, where we just opened our second location. Right. Um, Ian grew up in the in the Mass Landing area where, you know, his original garage was. Um, that was the, the intent was to open the brewery in Freeport. Um, but with just the, we started like, you know, shoestring budget. I think it was like $5,000. Uh, you know, right, we yeah. were brewing out, we were brewing out of, uh, you know, a two, a two barrel, like, you know, open top kettle and four plastic fermenters. And, um, so we didn't have an, any money. Uh, so the Westbrook is a, you know, a more up and coming, uh, city, um, you know, smaller than Portland, but you know, right on the, on the border. So you do get a little bit more traffic, which, you know, our kind of foot traffic is a lot different than Miami foot traffic. Oh, for obviously, sure. Right. There's <laughs> <laughs> a small percentage, but, but yeah, so it, it was, we, um, found an old, uh, tire factory in downtown Westbrook where the rent, what we got for a full, you know, warehouse factory was, you know, what, you could have, you know, got for a hundred square feet in Portland. So, um, we were, we were very excited to be able to, um, you know, have the space to grow. Um, but yeah, the, the, ultimately it was, it was a financial decision. It was, you know, it wasn't our first choice, but I really feel, um, fortunate that it happened that way because we, we created such a strong bond with the community in Westbrook and they were very excited to have us. And you know, we were the first, you know, brewery in Westbrook. So, um, our not, yeah, our supporters and, you know, to this day are, you know, still, you know, incredible. Um, and, you know, so we, we didn't just jump on the, the, Hey, another brewery in Portland. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it happened for a reason. I, I definitely feel like that. How did you guys go about financing that first location? Um, it was, uh, we, we don't have any, you know, we didn't have any large investors. Um, we had, you know, a little bit here and, you know, someone's dad, you know, a thousand dollars here and there. We actually, um, through relation, uh, work relationship, the, the, the people who own the, uh, the old tire warehouse, um, or factory are actually, they were, you know, friends of friends in, in the area. And they heard that we were looking for a brewery. Um, we actually worked out a, um, a deal where our rent was very low in turn for, you know, a small portion of like, percentage of revenue, um, you know, ownership for right, it, yeah. but it helped, it, it helped a lot where, you know, it's better to have, you know, 98% of something than, you know, hundred percent of nothing. Right. But so they were, they, they were very helpful and pivotal. They helped us, you know, build out the taste, the first tasting room as well. And, and structured our rent in a way that we weren't out the gate owing a ton of money. 
Um, and it built up over the year once, you know, we got our feet under us and had income and, or, you know, sales. So it was very helpful. Um, and it, like, it was a little creative, but, uh, I think it was by, you know, by far the best choice for us. Nice. Nice. Weston. Yeah. When did you join the company? I actually, uh, I'm my one year anniversary is next week. Nice. Uh, nice. I think so. Uh, I, I've only, I've been around for a year now. Where, where were you before mass landing? Uh, I was, I grew up in Maine, um, but I have, I've been gone for about 15 years since I left for college. Uh, and I was living in Minneapolis and working at Surly Brewing. Uh, oh, oh boy. Okay. <laughs> we got some friends we, there. We got a lot of, yeah, I got a lot Josh of, I got, I got and, Josh uh, and Ben. And yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I worked, I was, um, I was Josh's counterpart. He, he and Ben are good friends of mine. Um, so, what, yeah, I mean, up until a year ago, I was working for them. Wait a second. Did you, did you go to New York City? I did, yeah. That's, we met, yeah, we, uh, had a, we had a picture at the bar. Yeah, we yeah, sent it to Josh. <laughs> Holy crap. Okay. Yeah, um, Everything <laughs> just clicked. <laughs> okay. 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 Now, I, I think I still have that picture that I sent to Josh. I'm going to have to dig that up now. So, <laughs> so you, how long were you at Surly? I was at Surly for seven years. Oh, wow. Okay. What were you doing there? I mean, you were his counterpart, but like specific, like day-to-day operations, what were you doing? Yeah. So I, I was the lead brewer, um, at the, the Minneapolis, the, the new brewery, uh, right. with the, um, you know, the, the main production brewery. Uh, so I was running that day-to-day operations at, um, at that facility, at least brewing operations, um, you know, making the, uh, the flagship brands like Furious and Extra Citra and Hell and, uh, those beers. You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're talking to Parker Olin and Weston Shepard of Mass Landing. So, what do you do now for Mass Landing? I am the uh, production manager at Mass Landing. Um, so, similar similar role to what I was doing at Surly, um, but obviously, you know, a, a different, very different brewery uh, and, and at a different scale. Um, so, just yeah, running running day to day production operations here. Very nice. So, you know, Mass Landing started getting buzzed with juicy IPAs, milk stouts, session IPAs. What, Weston, how have, like, the beer offerings evolved, and what are your customers drinking nowadays, would you say, like, more of? Or what are you guys seeing a trend on? Yeah, we, we talk about it a lot, um, and I think we have we have a really diverse uh, kind of spread of, of offerings and just like a lot of breweries nowadays we, we try to mix it up and offer a lot of new things um, and also we have some some standbys that, that people expect to see when they <clears throat> when they come into the tap room um, in terms of the, the evolution of of what people are drinking um, I think I think people are interested in more, more variety uh you know for for a while I, I think the founding one of the founding principles of, of like the craft beer movement was was that we were going to bring diversity to american beer because right. for a long time it was um all you could get was uh you know american lagers bud light um, <laughs> yeah. and and then like maybe guinness right exactly <laughs> or like a newcastle brown ale or something like that right um and then craft beer came along and we wanted to give people all these options um but i think you know, maybe in the past five years or so, we, we sort of got away from that where it was like you walked into a craft beer and uh, and it was like, okay, you got 
25 different beers on tap, but 24 of them are IPAs. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and so we're, we're finding, you know, we are really proud of our IPAs um, and our customers and, and we try to mix those up and, and, you know, continue to push, push um, those styles and, and, you know, push our quality forward on those. Uh, but we're also brewing, um, you know, our, our actually our primary beer is called Gunner's Daughter. Um, that's our number one beer that we produce, which is a, a peanut butter milk stout. Oh, um, okay. And uh, and we do we do sours. Um, we've been brewing. We just got some horizontal uh, lagering tanks. So okay. we've really been pushing our uh, lagering program, and we have some lagers that we're really proud of, uh, as well as um, you know adjunct stouts and, and even some like kind of other classic styles like we brewed in English mild. Um, that, that, that's, spring. that's, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sold very well. I promise. No, sold no, actually. Well, yeah. I, I um, mean, listen, we did, we did an ESB and it sold really well. Like it was like mind blowing, yeah. like a normal classic style beer that you would think, ah, oh, no one, you know, uh, we did it because the brewer wanted to do it, you know, and it, I was kind of like, eh, is this really going to sell? I somewhat you know, fought I, against and, it. And we put it on and, you know, it sold. It all, was great. All the distributors that took it <laughs> that we distribute in their states are were either like Minnesota, Wisconsin, or like Virginia, the Northeast. Yeah. But yeah. it sold. Like yeah. it flew. Yeah. It's because I think it's because people like Weston was saying, they haven't seen that for a while. And especially, you know, from, uh, you know, similar brewery. And I, they get excited because it's not, a, you know, from there's a, a unlimited IPAs, but when you, we, yeah, we also started, we started doing some West coast style IPAs as yeah. well out here. And, you know, our distro, like they snatched that up quickly. Like it, yeah. it's, it's, it's cool to see that. And, and I think we're like, um, you know, getting to a more of a balance now, uh, right. back to that balance of yeah. a lot of different styles. You also get like some, I don't know what the, like, second or third wave <clears throat> craft beer people who come right. into the tap room right. and they try an ESP and they're like, Oh, what is this new style? <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, or they, they try Scottish ale and, and they get like, you know, toffee flavors and, right. and caramel. And, um, you know, they're like, so how many, uh, how many caramels did you unwrap to put in this beer? <laughs> Whatever it is. Uh, and so it's fun it's fun for us to, to brew, you know, this wide range of styles and it kind of, it challenges um, me and the other brewers to uh, you know, to stay sharp. Um, and, and I think it's also exciting for our customers to, to kind of be like, Hey, what, what's next? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I think most important thing is, is to maintain the quality regardless of what you're brewing. Um, you know, you can brew anything well, and you, and then um, unfortunately, you can brew anything poorly too. <laughs> so, uh, yes, I think yes. You know, people are focused on, especially now, as as consumers are so much more educated than they used to be, and and they have so many options. Um, people are focused on on like quality first, and they can tell a well made beer even if it's maybe not their favorite style or a style they're used to. Well, I mean, you got a gold medal now, so it's definitely high quality beer. You know what I mean? So. Do we want to maybe tell our listeners that might not be so well-versed in the different styles about an ESB? Well, I mean, it, so basically you're talking about, you know, extra special bitter. I mean, you're rolling the clock back to 
I like John. E- John is you guys because it's ago. radio you know world. I mean? You guys can't see this, but John is looking yeah. at me explaining to me what an extra. I'm not trying. No, I'm not trying to. No, I know. I know what you know. I'm just telling. I'm telling. I'm telling the listeners so that they know. This is not mansplaining. No, no, no. I didn't say that. I did not say that. But you know, it's. But I think that kind of goes hand in hand of for what we've seen a lot of recently because we got so well known for doing big stouts, you know, and then adding adjuncts. But we, we've never rode into the wave of it being just about the adjuncts. You know, for us, it was still always I want to be able to taste the beer, taste the base beer, because the base to beer. me, that's the most important thing, yeah. because if all you taste is coconut, then really, to me, that's not beer. You know what I mean? And I love sours, but for us, we're still on the lighter side of the fruit additions. We add it during fermentation to add the flavors, but also get the sugars out, help increase the alcohol level, things like that, instead of just waiting till in for fermentation, adding stabilizers and just dumping in fruit per, you know, puree. So, I mean, it, there's different ways to go all about it. But I think what we're seeing is that people are drinking more classic styles because they, like you said, Weston, they they've forgotten about these things or they weren't introduced to these because people weren't brewing them. You know what I mean? They, they haven't been brewing these styles. And then all of a sudden we want to bring them back because we want to offer a variety in a, in a change of pace besides doing just hazy IPAs and big stouts and sours every single day. Now we're bringing back these classic styles and people are finding them again. And it's like, Holy crap. Like, what are these? Like you said, like, oh, you guys are adding caramel to these? No, actually, no, that is actually coming from the grain base. You know, we're not adding any adjuncts. Yeah. This is what this beer really tastes like and what you can manipulate it to taste like just with grains and yeast. You know, it's, it's to me, I think it's like a come up and revitalization of these old styles. At least sure. that's my thoughts. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I do have, you know, I have a question, though, like between Freeport and Westbrook, how much production are you guys doing nowadays? Um, so we have Freeport is um, a our newest location, which has a five barrel, just a five barrel kind of pilot system um, with four five barrel uh, fermenters. Right. Um, that is mostly, like I said, for pilot trying out some new stuff, some draft only um, production. But we have our twenty thousand square foot uh, production facility in Westbrook which is about a half mile down the road from our, ta- our original tasting room. We, we outgrew the, the tire warehouse about tw- 2019. Um, and so now we are into our kind of our third location, but where oh, nice. 99% of our production um, is, I would say Weston, we hit, I think it was almost, or it was 11,000 barrels. Yeah. We we're, we're wow. just under 12. Okay. Nice, man. Oh, just under 12. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Nice. And, and last year. So, yeah, we, I think a lot of people um, that know us and then find out that we're slightly bigger than they actually realized, um, you know, we, we've done kind of that slow organic growth, um, just, you know, that, that spread, um, you know, the next state makes sense and the next state makes sense to open distro wise. So, um, yeah, it's uh, going from, you know, four, four barrel plastic fermenters in 2016. <laughs> right. um yeah, it, it's funny whenever I say that and you know, in the brewing industry, people know that you're kind of like, well, you know, you have plastic fermenters because the only reason you do that is that's all you could afford. Um, but right, hey, listen, right I, listen, I, I've seen a lot of guys and been around a lot of guys through my time in the industry since like 2005 
that have brewed in plastic fermenters. Wasn't Highland Park like that? Uh, or yes. Like the out of a Highland garage? Par- the Highland Park was in plastic fermenters. Or, or I mean, that was... <laughs> they mashed in in a plastic tote in the back and then yeah. and then shipped it in trust me i i was there i was there to help do that and then you know yeah. i mean but also greg rap in tampa all he was like a two-barrel brew house and every single fermenter i'm talking like 30 plastic fermenters all of them and the beer was excellent so there's no knock yeah. on that at all no and that's the, one of the like most proud moments uh, like early on was we had the uh the, i think it was the crew from allagash their production crew came over to our westbrook tasting room and you know we gave them all beers and in the in the tasting room and they're like, let's check out your system and they walked back to the, <laughs> the floor, and they and they looked at down at their beers and they're like you're making this beer out of those this is phenomenal and it was right. kind of like you know one of the best one of the best compliments you could get, uh, you know, from those guys. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. But yeah, we, we quickly, quickly grew out of those. Um, and now we're on a 30 barrel system. Um, and I, at this point, I don't even, I, Weston probably can tell me or tell you what we have like six, six, you know, all sorts. Yeah, I mean, lines. I mean to come up from that to now be doing a little under 12,000 barrels. I mean, that's, that's humping, man. That's, that's an awesome, awesome journey <laughs> for growth. sure. If you can have an organic quick growth, I guess that's what that's that's that is actually the best way. Absolutely. So (laughs) for sure, Parker, I I do have one last question, though. So I read that you were an L.L. Bean model and I saw that you were featured on the Vineyard Vines website. What sartorial advice would you give guys who want to rock the quintessential cool, carefree main look this summer? Wait, wait, wait. Before you answer, Parker, Weston, do you guys give him shit about this all the time? Yeah, he, he got a fair amount of shit for the vineyard vines. Uh, he looked good, though. It was, well, I, uh, I guarantee you. Know, I mean, come on. He's a good-looking we guy. All, so. we all, it was like it came from a place of jealousy, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Does anyone know how to remove things from the Internet? No, I do not. <laughs> no, I do not. Oh, I, man. I don't know if it, if there's, you know, I doubt that Maine has a reputation, any kind of sartorial repu- reputation in Florida, but um, it is like, especially New York and Boston, like it's like a joke that people in Maine don't give a shit about what they wear. <laughs> you know, uh, It's like a very informal, you know, you have these like fancy white tablecloth, James Beard restaurants and you go in and people are there in like, you know, muck boots and I don't know, a sweatshirt or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, that, it's so funny that like the, the, yeah, Vineyard Vines literally like internet stalked me. I thought it was like someone catfishing me for a while. Um, and yeah, yeah I, it's, I, I'm, I'm a, like a tall, goofy dude. It's like, it, there's no, there's no ounce of model in me. And they're just like, <laughs> Oh, you, you know, you fit the bill. Exactly. I was like, absolutely not. Hey, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean, they must've seen something dude. So like, you know, don't <laughs> knock yourself too hard. I mean, honestly, so no, I know, but it's hilarious because if you, yeah, like if you, everyone that knows me, that's not, that's not my, my jam whatsoever, but I, I also have trouble saying no and, you know, to help support the brand. So if we come so. in July, yes. what is the recommended wear? Like, are we rocking, like, sweaters and shorts and some, like, loafers? Or, like, what are we, boat shoes? What are we doing? <laughs> no. Well, so that's the thing. One of my favorite parts about me. One, is it'll be nice. It'll be, like, beautiful 75, right. 80 degrees with a nice light breeze. Um, 
but yeah, Maine is, is fun because you can wear literally whatever you want and no one cares. Um, you know, flip flops, (laughs) you know, shorts, tank tops, flannels, (laughs) flannels, <laughs> bean boots. Um, no, yeah, you, you can wear it out. No one, uh, okay. uh, yeah, whatever you, you, uh, you have, usually to, have, style. You have to have one piece of LL bean. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. That's all I needed to know. That's all I need to know. I'll make sure that John is, uh, is well equipped with some LL bean or Absolutely. some vineyard vines. <laughs> okay. well, yeah. well, thank you guys very much for joining us today. This has been awesome. And, thank you. uh, can't wait to see you guys soon here in, uh, in July. Yep. It's been an Absolutely. awesome interview. All right. And good thanks seeing you again, uh, Weston. Thanks for having us. We're going to need thanks another guys. picture, yeah, all right? Good seeing you again, John. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Later, guys. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guests are members of the United States men's bobsled national team, which just competed in the Winter Olympics in Beijing a few months ago. They're going to answer the burning question of how a couple of guys from Newport Beach, California and Lake Mary, Florida, ended up competing at the highest level of one of the world's premier sliding sports. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Josh Williamson and Carlo Valdez. How are you guys today? Doing well. Doing good. It's Friday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, well, I, I do want to say congratulations. You guys are the first Olympic athletes that we have had on the beer hour. You can add that to the list of accomplishments at this point. Yeah, pad the resume. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So can you clear up a common question for our listeners who may not be familiar with sledding sports? What is the difference between the sports of bobsled, skeleton, and luge yeah so uh they're, they're very different um so bobsled is when you know all of us are pushing and then we hop in much bigger vehicle much heavier more people two man four man and mama bob now for the women um four runners it's just it's just we have a lot of weight going down the track and then a lot of speed now skeleton though is is uh well skeleton and luge are both single um man events so skeleton you're going down you know, head first on your stomach down the track, um, almost on like a, uh, cafeteria tray. You know, that's what it kind of looks like. <laughs> right. Um, right. And, and then, and then luge, luge is feet first on your back and you're a little elevated. Um, and all you do is paddle to start. And then it's mainly just, you know, you're driving all the way down it while skeleton. Yeah. You're pushing and you hop on and then you're driving also. So those are more of the individual events, while our event is more of a team aspect, which is you know why it's, um, you know why Josh and I like it so much because we came from team sports, right, so, right. Um, but but yeah, and as far as like the danger aspect goes, skeletons the least dangerous, and luge is the most dangerous, and we're in the, we're in the middle. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So, yeah, that's that's a little fun fact about. Um, know how, how dangerous this sport can be because people are always curious about that so absolutely the danger aspect actually you know bobsled is actually one of my favorite winter sports to watch in the olympics uh a few facts from the u.s team's website that i didn't know a four-man bobsled with its crew weighs up to about 1400 pounds and can reach speeds of 80 miles an hour sliding down an icy track with four to five bank turns obviously something that most of us will never experience tell us what it's like to make a bobsled run thrilling terrifying like you know where, where does it fit in for you guys in that i'm probably exhilarating it, it really is i mean at the end of the day it's uh 
it's one of those things that you'll, it's hard to describe until you get in the track because I, I ask the same question when I get back and, you know, my first time in the sport, Carlo was there, you know, my first year in the sport, they were gearing up for the Olympics. I was just getting in 2017 and I'm wondering what it's like. And honestly, nobody can give me a straight answer. And then you just right. kind of find out it's very, it's fast. It's very, it's a lot more rattly than you'd expect you'd think it'd be pretty smooth, right? Cause you're thinking of ice and these banking turns, but in reality it's, it's screaming loud. If you're ever at a race and a four man's coming down the track, it sounds like a train's coming until it finally passes because you're, you're almost chattering down the ice a little bit. Wow. Cause something okay. that's not very well known about our sport is the runners are almost like a finger width. They're not sharp at all. They're right. actually rounded. And the fatter the runner is, the, the more round it is, the less control you'll have, but theoretically the faster you'll go. Okay. So if it's a track that you want more control on, you're going to go thinner runners. If it's a track you, you want to go fast and you need less control, fatter you, runners. Comfortable, you go fat. Uh-huh. Yeah. You go to a fattest radius we offer, which is seven and a half mils. <laughs> That's the violent aspect of it. I mean, really when we look at like, you know, people talk about a lot of like, you know, head injuries and then a lot of the kind of effects of that. We don't have as many large impacts, but we have kind of constant chattering. And that's kind of the biggest thing we have to deal with is the, is almost the rattling, you know, if that makes sense, you hit a wall and you're going to, you're going to blitz something, you know, your head might hit a wall or something. But so it's like, that, it's like the, it's like really just chattering. It's like the constant vibration hitting the body does more damage. Yes, it's exactly. Cause that just adds up like right. micro hits. And that's something that some tracks, you know, ice conditions can be better or worse. Beijing, you know, at the Olympics, ice conditions are about as good as you're going to get. So it's going to be a little less chattery, but that's the best way to describe it. I think I'd, if someone who's never done it might not know is that it's, it's honestly, you're constantly just rattling down the track. And that's, that's kind of the part that I think huh. when you're first time in the sled, it catches you off guard because once you're chattering down the track and you get into a turn and then you're just getting buried by like four or five G's of pressure just momentarily. So then it wow. gets less chattery because you get pushed into the bottom of the sled, you get glued right. to the bottom, then you get into a straightaway and you start rattling again. Then you glued. So it's this constant weird sensation that you kind of get used to the more you do it. But at first you're like, it's just so different than anything you can really experience anywhere else. I guess roller coasters are similar, but roller coasters are guided. Maybe one of the old maybe so the old wo- control. Maybe like one of the old wooden roller coasters. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's moving around, and you, it's a little less out of control. You know, like right. you can go left and right. So not only are we going straight, you could skid up and down. Right. So sometimes you're doing this while going forward. So it's it's yeah, it's a really interesting that, uh, that's, feeling. That's I guess. interesting. So I, I'm going to kind of get into yeah. this. So I played a lot of sports in my life. I still like sports. Still like to lift. Still like to train. Stuff like that. But whenever seeing somebody that has competed or competes in the Olympics, to me, it's always another level. You know what I mean? Like, that's another level of athlete. The guys that make track, the, what you guys do on bobsled, just all these sports, like, that's the next level athlete. Can you guys describe the moment that you found out that you were joining the U.S. men's bobsled team? Like, what is what was that feeling like as an athlete? It doesn't really hit you until you're actually there. And specifically in opening ceremonies, that's when it truly all hits you. That's what, for me at least, is what for a lot of people, that's the same thing. Opening ceremonies for me in Korea and in China were both like my top moments because that's like when it all hits you. Yeah, that, that I mean that's just strange for me. Pretty pretty simple. Um, I wish I could share the feeling with you. How it, what no, I know. Like. What, what do you think, Josh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, well, I unfortunately this year my first Olympics I did miss my opening ceremony. I was uh, I was COVID. I was oh. in California. Oh, I, I ended up going late. But my for me, the big thing I think was when I first like you know, when I first got into the sport, I definitely felt it was exciting, but I definitely I just was like a nobody. I was like, okay, I'm just I just gotta learn as much as I can. These guys are freaks. I don't know the first thing about the sport. I just need and I kind of felt like that 
even up until this last year where I mean, I was going on my fifth year, which was very weird for me to think about that I was going into my fifth year in the sport. Like it just right. still feels like every day I'm brand, I'm brand new. I feel like I'm learning so much. And I just, it's just up until I got to the games, really similar to what Carlos saying, you know, I didn't have that opening ceremony experience, but at the end of the day, just being at the Olympics was huge. Cause after it was done, even after this, that first heat of racing, it just, it just kind of, I don't know. It just hit me. It's like, okay, I, I've, I've trained and I've played sport, maybe not for the sport, but I've trained a long time in my life. And I spent a lot of time doing a lot of things that some are fun. Some are not, you know, sometimes right, you don't yes. want to do it. And I kept yeah. doing it. And then it just like, I got to the bottom of that first heat and I'm like, I'm an Olympian, you know, however the end of this race goes, I just, I just raced a heat at the Olympics in a sport. And that was a, that was a pretty surreal moment for me riding up on the truck back up to the top. I got three right. more heats to go. So it's like, you know, <laughs> nothing was decided. I saw a lot of racing to do, but I'm kind of pinching myself like, Holy shit! I just went to the Olympics. I just competed in the Olympic Games. That was pretty crazy. So uh, that's probably when it hit me. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're talking to U.S. Olympic bobsled team members Josh Williamson and Carlo Valdez. Thank you for the addition there. <laughs> I, love, I love the way you said that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she added the spice. Hello, I she, have to add the Latina. The, uh, no, you, know? you add the spice. I, I, am, I am half Hispanic. So. There you go. There you go. So <clears throat> at last count, there are 470 ski resorts in the U.S. I mean, I've skied some in Utah, you know, Washington State, Oregon, Idaho, you know, Colorado. If you're a kid, you know, wanting to try skiing or snowboarding, there are plenty of places to take take up the sports. You know what I mean? But if you're a kid that wants to try bobsledding, there are only two tracks in the U.S., one in Lake Placid, New York, and the other in Park City, Utah. Both of those places hosting the Winter Olympics, you know, decades ago. That has to be a kind of a big barrier for entry. Like, how can kids or young athletes who see the sport online or on TV get inspired and actually try it? Uh, word of mouth could be the best way to do it. Okay. Um, yeah, just being able to fly out to Park City Lake Placid just to give it a try. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be on them, but you know, I think after one or two runs, they'll figure out if they want to do it or not. Because everyone's course. a great athlete, but the, sec- the second you go down, <laughs> you know, you, your mind starts thinking like, do I really want to do this? Of course, um, of course. So yeah, I mean, you know, in Josh's situation too. I mean, Florida, you know, there's a lot of great athletes down there, so you know. At some point, Josh could be doing the same thing I'm, good. I'm doing right now. Is just trying to direct people, you know, to go try out. That's it. You won't know until you try out. Right. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Hundred percent. And that's uh, with with specifically with you know, like you're talking like kids, for example. I know, like for example, Cody Baskew and Hunter Church are two pilots in our program who they both started very young, and that's and they were driving. They they live up in like Placid area. Right. They got both, and I think first sleds. Like I think what Cody was like, Carlo what like ten, twelve when he got in his first sled. Hunter was like 13 or something like that, which that's about as early as you hear, you know what I right. mean? Like that's pretty crazy. And if, if you're like a real, you know, if you're very young and you're thinking about bobsled, my advice would be play as many sports as you can, you know, do as much explosive fun sprint. You know, you're talking about sprinting, jumping as right. a kid, you know, like you don't need to be hitting the weights at eight, but you can also be, be sprinting and jumping, you know, and really getting building in a pretty, pretty for lack of a better word pretty a defining time in your athletic abilities at that age you know the more you do explosive stuff with a little bit of rest instead of just like running up and down back and forth the better you can be eventually it may be explosive activity and that's something that most people don't get into our sport till after college right again at the youngest some people come in during college that's i have an example of that but right really at the end of the day it's just doing as much and you see that with every sport 
the best athletes tend to do as many sports as they can, as long as they can. And that's a pretty common theme going through a lot of great athletes across a lot of different sports. And that's, that's the best advice I'd give any kid really is do explosive things, play as many sports as you can enjoy, you know, do what you want to do. And eventually if that's something you want to get into, get into it. Cause another thing with our sport being so rough, it's not, I don't know how much you want, you know, a 13 year old getting into a bobsled, frankly, because <laughs> at the end of the day, you get a lot of hits to the head. Right. So it's, and it's fun to do, but I would, what they do in Lake Placid is really cool. I don't know if Park City does this. I'm sure they might. It's a junior bobsled program. Nice. It's like a once or twice a week thing. Kids will drive over, you know, because they're all upstate New York, it's pretty right. spread out. So you kind of drive over a couple hours, right. you come in town for, you do a couple runs, you go home, you know, and you do it once or twice a week for a few years. Okay. You know, there's no really, other than paying to do it, you're just kind of, and that's, you know, if you want to drive, there's not a lot of pushing or anything, you know, that's more just, you really want to try bobsled, try driving it because bobsled driving is a skill that takes time. So right. if you get in younger, theoretically, you'll be better at it, but that's, you know, that's kind of the junior approach, but our sport is pretty specific, especially with the brakeman that you usually are going to come in from another sport. And okay. It's just not something that if you have a young pilot, they're not going to be going off the top at 13. Right. So if you're a 13 year old who wants to be a brakeman, you're just going to be sitting in the back. You're not going to be pushing or anything. Right. So just kind of, you know, play as many sports as you can, you know, train, have fun. And eventually if these are the, if this is a sport that suits your abilities, get into it, you know, give it a try. Like Carlos said, it kind of, it kind of leads me into my, my next question. So you're wanting to try the sport and then obviously you, you don't like any sport. You don't really know if you really love it till you actually do it, you know, football throw on the pads and actually take a hit. You'll figure out whether you like yep. it or not. You know what I mean? Doing exactly. bobsled, you won't know until exactly. you actually get it in, into a sled and go down a track. Yep. But to go along with that, like any sport, what's the training cycle like for you guys? You know what I mean? What is the program? I mean, obviously, it's a four-year buildup. Like, are you guys, how many days a week are you guys hitting this? What kind of diet are you guys on? Like, give me, like, a brief breakdown, like, to get ready and prep for all this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, it really depends on the, you know, we're in-season, off-season um, you know, tapering, stuff like that. So in the off season, I mean, we're, we're training like five, six days a week. Wow. Um, very, very, uh, frequently too. Like sometimes we're doing double days. Other times we're just doing stuff. Um, even on our off days just to, you know, have active recovery or just getting ready for the next day. Um, yeah, for me, you know, my off season is a little, a little crazy because the amount of volume that I do, everyone, you know, does a lot of volume in the off season, but you just got to train like a maniac, you know, from, you know, call it May or June, um, all the way through, you know, our first testing, which typically is in September. Olympic year, it's like July. So you got to like, you got to juggle some things. But, you know, typically all summer, we're just training like power lifters, honestly. Right. That, that, <laughs> that, that's what I was kind of, what does the yeah. workout look like? Are you guys, is it more power lifting or is it more CrossFit? Like, you know, Where's the mix? Because obviously you have to throw in some explosive movements, sled pushes, you know, um, sprint work. I mean, you you have to work on this as well, which is also kind of like track work. Yeah, I think I think think the best way to describe it is what most people would describe it is we train like a Olympic sprinter and generally in the morning and then the afternoon it goes more weightlifting, powerlifting. So in the morning, you know, generally you're going to have a two hour track session, sprinting, med ball throws, like you said, sled pushes, sled pulls, just putting track spikes on and doing, we, we don't go you know much further than like 60 meters. There's really no reason for us. Right. And if you do, it's just, you just, you just, you know, you're just a masochist if you want to do that to yourself because <laughs> we don't need it. You know, you know what I mean? Like we just don't need it. And we're so heavy usually that it's just painful. So we usually do like up to 30 to 60 meters sprinting in the morning, med ball throwing. And then we have maybe a break 
after you're going into weightlifting, you know, you're doing right. either power clean, squatting, Carla does a lot of jerking, you know, used to do a lot of stuff with javelin. So that's just, just finding exercises that are explosive that you can load up pretty heavy. And then just, you know, working through that, that's usually, I'd say that's three days a week for most of us. That's like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday kind of thing. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, you're looking more at low intensity jogging, maybe biking, like Carl said, active recovery. It's almost like preparing you for the next day. Cause that Monday, Wednesday, Friday is so taxing that that next day you don't want to do a lot, but you can't do nothing because right. then you're just going to be brutally sore on like Wednesday. So Monday you hit it hard. Tuesday, you at least move, you know, you do some ab work or you bike for 20, 30 minutes. You, you low end cardio. A couple hundred meters. Yeah. yeah. Low intensity, flush yeah. the body, get some movement yeah. in so that tomorrow you're not just like stiff and sore. So you can right. hit it hard again the next day. And that's, that's kind of how the week looks. Sunday's off generally. And everyone's a little different, but right. I'd say the best way to describe it is half sprinter, half weightlifter. You know, if you look at those two Olympic sports, we do a little bit of both. We wow. pretty much try to do both at a high enough level as we can. Right. Obviously it's hard to do Sometimes they're counterintuitive because sprinters, you don't want to be super heavy. And we were trying to be 220, 230 pounds. Right. Weightlifters, you don't want to be too small, but right. we can't be too, you know, 260 either. So it's kind of like you're just balancing out <laughs> of doing both really well, but not doing either at like an, a high level, like right. an outstanding level. You know, we're trying to be really good at both. What are you guys eating yeah. during this time? Honestly, it's just all about calories in the off season. I mean, I'll probably eating like five thousand calories a day. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Even, okay. Even in season four, four to five, yeah. like it's, yeah. No, it's pretty crazy. So yeah, I, I'm saying the same here. Here's part of the diet. Well, that 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 was going to be like my next wrap in. I mean, you know, we we were lucky enough to have all you guys down here for Wakefest, and I mean, obviously, you guys are craft beer drinkers. I mean, how did you guys get into craft beer? Carlo, Carlo drug me into it. It's uh, it's now it's become. I, I obviously alcohol is not good for performance, but it's also. I think there's a balance. I think there's a balance, Carlo, between <laughs> if it makes you feel relaxed, then right. you're going to recover more. Because for right. me, if I'm drinking and it's, I'm getting very parasympathetic. I'm, I'm relaxing a little bit. Then I'm going to recover well. It's because that's something I enjoy. And plus, I think it's really important. I've found recently for my performance to have things outside of sport that I. I enjoy, you know, right. that I obsess over because for me, I'm a very obsessive person. And with sport, I can just sit there and watch videos for hours of the same push over and over, you know, just like, but that's too much because sometimes if you solely focus on one thing and you're not very diverse in your life, you can, it can burn out pretty fast or it can get, it can get so taxing because if you're not seeing the immediate returns that you're putting so much effort into, it can be really hard. So I've noticed my performance go up when I have other, for lack of better words, hobbies and passions and craft beer is something that I was, I was able to relate a lot to with some of the guys on the team that I could get really into and I could really enjoy the process of it and looking into what I liked and trying different breweries and, you know, just really making it more of a, a passion of mine and same with other things in my life. I like coffee a lot. I like there's, you know, just in general, there's little things that I'm trying to branch out on. I really like reading a lot and just things that I can focus on that okay. are sport I've found is a really healthy outlet. And I think beer for me is kind of turned into that. I just have to balance it with training. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no such thing as balance. No, no, but no. Like, here's a, here's a, my top, I don't know if you can see the check. Yes, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> but the, hey, I mean, yeah. thousands of check-ins. Uh, I mean, but that's good. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, you find something you love, you enjoy. Obviously, you know, for me, it was also, you know, I, I've been up and down, you know, obviously training and, and lifting and drinking beer. And obviously, I always found like too much excess obviously led to I if I didn't train enough, I would obviously putting on too much weight. Mm-hmm. So now I kind of find the balance or like Josh said, but it's still for me, like if you enjoy it, then 
don't deprive yourself of that. You know what I mean? It's going to help yeah. you relax and enjoy yourself and help carry on and do something better in those areas that you are, you know, focusing on. I yeah, mean, I, 100%. I, um, for me, I'm like, I love IPAs and stouts. Right. And then reds and blondes are like my underrated, um, you know, that I like that no one else like kind of takes advantage of. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I have enough. <laughs> you know, and I've learned, I've learned to keep it to the point where, you know, one to two is good. Right. Um, instead of like just going all out. Right. But, but yeah, I, my favorite style hundred percent would be barrel aged stouts. Well, I think, I think I, we, I you think, came uh, to the right you, place. You know, we, we, <laughs> yeah. I think we try yeah. to take care of you guys on that one. So I do have one last question for you guys. What's next? I, I know Carlo, you, you've done two Olympics. What's next for you? And then Josh, you had your first Olympics what's next for you? I was just looking for a career that I knew I could do and maybe juggle that with bobsled. And I knew it was going to be in sales, um, just to know where. And then also an opportunity came up to be in, uh, in finance and nice. have my own financial planning practice. So I've been in financial planning for four years now. Wow. Um, okay. So I just, I just came straight back to, to this. I just didn't miss a beat, came straight back into this. And I wanted to start easy coming back into this but then all of a sudden like just people wanted to talk and people wanted to do business and i hit the ground running being back so that's this is my full-time job i you know run a team you know i meet with people on a day-to-day basis but the cool part is i make my own hours which is why right. i was able to both do both bobsled and this at the same time wow that's a challenge. awesome yeah yeah it, it was a challenge but you know I, I was lucky enough to have in this position where you know i make my own hours right um, so yeah, this is gonna be my my whole career. I'm not moving. Obviously, I'm gonna maybe shift into other stuff in the future. Right. Um, but this would be the full time gig. Wow. So, so I got lucky. What about you, Josh? What's next, man? Uh they're gonna have to they're gonna have to drag me off the ice. I want to keep going. <laughs> I, I really. I'm, I'm gonna do another four for sure. Right. Uh, we we're you know we know you know going into like for my four man team coming off this last Olympics, we were at the time we were the youngest team at the games. So right. it's just, and I, for the most part, everybody on that team is coming back. Some people are kind of trying driving or what, you know, right. but there's just a lot of, and we have other guys, you know, in the program we want to continue. So for my big thing, I'm, you know, I'm going to continue on for sure. This was my first, you know, going to quad and I definitely want to do another, uh, right now it's just kind of like Carlos said, like after the career for him, he's kind of balancing, like, I want to probably need to go look into career opportunities. Cause at the same time, the biggest problem you see with a lot of Olympic athletes is, you compete for 12 years and next thing you know, you have a 12 year resume gap and right. being an Olympic athlete might get you an interview, but it's not just going to get you a job. If right. somebody else is more qualified, you know, it's a novelty for sure, but it's not, doesn't, doesn't automatically qualify you for everything. <laughs> so it's one of those right. things that right. there's a balancing act there. And it's just like, you know, we have some great opportunities to be with the committee of maybe getting postgraduates that it can be, you know, paid for and just thing like that. So just take advantage of trying to continue. And it's very easy to just slip into just doing sports. Cause it's what you like to do. Right. But when you're obviously out of college, it's like you can't just neglect your career because in it all, you know, eventually you don't catch up to you forever. Yeah, I can't bobsled forever. I get any sport. You can't do it forever. So that's kind of the balancing act this year. I'm definitely going straight in, though. I'm training right now. I'm doing some rehab and getting back into training for another four years. Nice. Uh, There's talks of 2030 Olympics being bid on by Salt Lake City and Vancouver in Canada. So either one of those, I mean, Salt Lake is a home Olympics and Vancouver is about as close to home Olympics as you can get in Canada. So if that were to be the case, I'd find it very hard to 
to not want to continue because if you have the opportunity to compete in the home Olympics, I don't know, you know, you do anything you can to be right. able to, to compete on American soil. You know, that'd be pretty cool. They have the LA 2028 Olympics. We actually just got some gear at out in Washington. They're doing a lot of their marketing for that. Nice. That'll be really fun to go watch the summer games out in LA. And uh, it's just, so that's kind of, for right now I'm continuing, you know, I'm awesome. looking at opportunities, trying to find things to do while competing, but hundred percent staying on competing at least for the next four years for sure. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the show. Thank this has been so an awesome much. interview and uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, good luck with uh, Carlo, with your, with your future endeavors and Josh, obviously good luck in competing. We'll in the, in team the forward. Absolutely, man. And also we'll probably see you again next wake fest. February 11th. 100%. Thousand percent. Here in Miami, so um, <laughs> yeah. My, my girlfriend actually comes to Miami quite often now because she's part of the hybrid coaching system with Steffi Cohen and uh, the other guy. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Awesome. awesome. Thank you, so, guys. Uh, yeah, we will see you guys soon, and uh, good luck out there. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests Parker Olin, Weston Shepard, Josh Williamson, and Carlo Valdez. Our co-host Maria Cabre our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.